Hello there. Thank you for tuning in this evening to the Women Interrupted podcast where every week we deconstruct the many different ways in which women's lives are interrupted in India and across the world. I am your host Nilanjana. In early February in 2018 in a small room in Madanpur Khadar a resettlement colony in the Indian capital a group of young girls were discussing their participation in a year long project as part of the project the girls had recorded their daily struggles of negotiating a hostile public space on a closed whatsapp group the girls had also taken part in writing and singing a hip hop song The Khadar ki Ladkiyan song was part of a wider project gendering the smart city funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council UK whose aim is to understand how women use technology and how the technology impacts the ways in which they negotiate the home and the city on a daily basis. The project had started in early 2017 with a small seed funding from King's College London. Joining me today is Ayona Katta who headed the project who is now a professor in the Department of Geography at University College London. Hello and welcome to the Women Interrupted podcast. I'm Ayona. Um thank you for joining us today and in today's um the episode uh, we are discussing uh safe cities safe cities and smart cities and you know what it means for women from a from a through a gender lens what was the idea behind the gendering the smart city project thanks thanks so much anjana for even inviting me on this podcast um so i'll try and just kind of unpack slowly some of the different questions you've asked but i i think i'll start with the last question which is about gendering the smart city project um and just to give you an overview in terms of how we conceptualized it at the start was that there are a lot of discussions and a lot of uh, reportings media and otherwise and in policy that we see about smart cities and of course in india it came in 2014 with the big national smart cities initiative but it's been around for a while across the world um and we were really interested in thinking about this notion of smart cities which is really very much a policy and corporate driven technologically driven uh, understanding of cities to think about what does it mean for women and what kind of stakes do women have in this sort of a technology driven city so that's where it came from um and the the idea of gendering came it wasn't about women and smart cities we consciously put the word gender there because we wanted to think first of all does technology have a gender because if smart cities are all about technology and their digital revolution and how you know everything becomes more efficient because we are using these platforms and dashboards and real time data analytics and so on and so forth um does that have a gender and does it have differential impact on people who identify themselves as men or women or bisexual or lesbian and etc etc um so we really wanted to think about that and so the gendering the smart city then was like a way to think of a critique of a smart city that has been conceptualized and driven from a very kind of top down policy 
through use of uh, different kinds of technologies, particularly making the use of big data and real-time analytics to efficiently manage and govern cities. And then to think, well, actually, if we go down to the, the more low-income neighborhoods in big cities like Delhi, which has been very much part of this digital revolution in India, what does, you know, how do women use technology differently or how can women use technology to support their everyday struggles or to, you know, circumvent different kind of challenges they have in everyday life, whether it's about violence, whether it's about livelihoods uh, and so on and so forth. So that's where really the Gendering Smart City came from. And so we, the partners on this project was Safety Pin uh, and, and Kalpana Vishwanath, who's kind of the CEO of Safety Pin. We worked very closely with her. And then Jaguri came into the partnership as well because they were working in Delhi. And Jaguri has done a lot of work in this kind of feminist um, uh, activism. Uh, and so therefore, you know, finally, when we decided that we will go to Khadr, it was very much a kind of combination of our different various interests. And it came together in a way that I realized that actually Khadr resettlement colony was partly um, a number of people uh, who were evicted from Delhi's uh, slums during the Commonwealth Games, and then they were put there in Khadr. And I realized that uh, those families, not the same, but you know, the similar slums I had researching in the early 2000s, uh, um, and I had kind of written about the, the evictions that had taken place, the kind of violence of uh, legal judicial evictions that, that pushed these people to the police. Um, and so it all came together and we decided that we'll focus on Khadr because of the way that it's it's a kind of a periphery in all sorts of ways, it's a periphery of the city itself, but it's also peripheral in the sense that these people's lives have been forgotten by the city. They've been chucked out, they've been thrown out, their lives have been forgotten, but they very much see themselves as part of the city. They very much see themselves as Delhiites. And these young women, they don't have any recollection of the evictions that their parents face because they were really small some of them weren't even born at that time in the early 2000s and now they kind of grew up as Delhiites they see themselves very much as part of the information digital revolution um, they all use mobile phones and so on but they really when we talked to them they really didn't understand what is the smart city so they had different interpretations of it and some of our discussions was about smart means, uh, you know, a city that is smart takes care of everyone. It works in a smart way that nobody is left behind. Um, and, and a very important aspect of their everyday life is about violence, violence of all forms, violence, of course, the you know, kind of the obvious violence of uh, violence against women, but also violence in the way the structural violence where they've been left behind from all sorts of policies, they, you know, they don't have infrastructural support. There's no, no water, you know, poor sanitation, uh, huge amounts of electric shutdowns um, and uh, public transport, very hard to reach city center jobs because Qadr is so poorly connected, all of that. But what came around really interestingly was the peripheralization of the digital revolution as well, that um, that the digital networks were not very strong over there. And so even if they have mobile phones, it's not necessary that they can actually access the internet through the mobile phones. Plus, 
the fact that, uh, you know, most of these internet sites from where they can access welfare services and all of that are very difficult and very cumbersome. It's very hard for them to access it through their mobile phones. So there's a question of, you know, being left behind in the digital divide because of, uh, you know, the, the absence of digital infrastructures and technologies, but also being left behind because they don't have the digital capacity to access these complicated, um, you know, welfare services. So, so working with them, we had a, we had this kind of uh, a brainstorming around what does it mean to gender the smart city, and it meant through discussions, it meant that gendering the smart city would be about alternative ways that we can use technology to make our voices uh, and our presence felt in the city, and um, and that can be one by you know developing our digital capacity with these women to help them learn ways to access, which is also what we did. And there was another part of the project that, that we had a Wikipedia workshop with them um, and, and trying to make them visible, help them make themselves visible, harder visible in the, in the internet space by writing about their neighborhood. And the other way that we thought would be really interesting to highlight would be to create that song. Um, and the song was mainly because, you know, they, they said that the state knows, the municipality knows what we need. They know we need better roads. They know we need public transport. They know we need water and toilets. And they know all of that. It's the, it's the lack of attention rather than lack of knowledge. And, and so we discussed how do we draw attention to this rather than, you know, telling them what they already know. And, and we thought that the song would be a very powerful way to draw attention to this endemic problem that has been have they faced over generations, but you know, in, in very different ways across generations. Um, and that's how the song came about. And, and it was really about using technology in, in not necessarily in the way that the smart city expects you to, like you know, uh, clicking on Facebook likes and Twitter likes and doing the surveys circulated by the government, but using technology in a way to draw attention and mobilize and advocate about continuing intergenerational problems around lack of infrastructure, gender-based violence, and so on. So using a technology to build a more inclusive city. Yeah. Uh, what does, um, you know, just to put it all in a little bit of perspective, what does a gender-neutral city or a smart city mm -hmm. look like or should look like? Good question. I think I, think I would say gender sensitive rather than gender neutral um, or gender responsive rather than gender neutral because gender neutral somehow indicates that we don't consider gender whereas gender responsive means we take it fully into account and I think uh, a smart city that is gender responsive is one which caters to the ways that different kinds of people on account of their gender identities are first face particular challenges of participating fully and a second are able to overcome these challenges whether through technology or otherwise um, and that means making number one making gen uh, technology inclusive and um, what does inclusive mean it means you know very simple things like uh, making access readability legibility of these websites particularly websites from which they gain you know, welfare services like, you know, particular schemes for women, education schemes, um, you know, food schemes, etc. 
to make these easy, legible in local languages, uh, things like that. But also making the mobile phones themselves, because we had this issue with the mobile phones, you know, with the kind of interfaces being very complicated. To make these easier to access, be more uh, friendly to uh, people who might not have the language literacy. Um, and then the bigger issues about infrastructure access, like, you know, uh, we, it's, it's very well known. If you actually have a look at the geography of the mobile network coverage in, in Delhi or any, any other metropolitan cities across India, you will see it maps very uh, well across middle class neighborhoods and, and very little across low income neighborhoods. And there's a reason for that, because mobile networks, mobile towers are, you know, have a geography within a city. The, the optical fiber cables have a geography within the city. So mobile is not just radioactive waves. It also has, you know, pipes and cables and fibers that, you know, are, are along roads and underground. Um, and we need to consider these in terms of how the inherent ways that we design and plan cities um, and not just, just digital infrastructures, but also you know, transport and water and sanitation has very high gender consequences. And so we must, in a, in a, in a city that is responsive, whether it's a smart city or not, I'm, I mean, to me, a smart city is one that is gender responsive, um, whether it is technologically supported or not. Uh, and so a, a city that is gender responsive would actively, proactively discriminate towards specific gender disadvantages that infrastructures bring about and, and proactively try to address those disadvantages. In my um, conversations with policymakers about <laughs> smart cities and safe cities, I have always had this overwhelming feeling that when they're talking about smart cities, they're talking about smart people. You know, people people who have access to smart technology, people who can afford uh, uh, smart technology, they are not talking about, quote unquote, the unsmart, you know, the marginalized population, which includes, yeah. you know, women yeah, as well. So do you feel that way? Like, do you think that, you know, that's that like when, when we are talking about like, especially, you know, in the context of India, yeah. I, uh, for example, I was talking to the one of the top executives of the Smart Cities project a couple mm -hmm. of years back. And uh, I asked him that, um, have you looked at the Smart Cities project through a gender lens? And he just looked at me baffled <laughs> for a couple of seconds. And he's like, you know, to be honest with you, we haven't thought about it this way. Mm -hmm. and I for a couple of seconds I didn't know how to respond to that we are talking about you know uh, cities in terms of uh, safety and inclusiveness where everyone feels safe and cared for yeah. and yet we have like uh, such a you know multi-billion dollar project and it mm -hmm. has uh, it doesn't have a gender component yeah that really baffled me <laughs> it's really interesting you say that because uh... Uh, you know, in, in in short, yes. I mean, that's the way the the smart city people that I have talked to have, you know, more or less responded with variations. I think the main main issue is that when when most smart people and, and they come mainly from kind of technology professional backgrounds uh, or management backgrounds, 
they generally think that technology is like a panacea to all sorts of social problems. Uh, and that's why the smart city is a, is a top-down policy initiative, is a flawed initiative, because it considers technology as a way to resolve things that are so historically, socially, culturally embedded, you know, as, as problems uh, in India or any other society, particularly problems of patri- patriarchy, uh, that that can be solved with technology. So, the, I mean, that inherently is one of the weaknesses of, uh, very strong weaknesses of the top-down smart city. But also when they have, when they have targeted specifically smart, safe city technologies, and, and some of the, if you some, read some of the reports by PricewaterhouseCoopers um, <clears throat> and Cisco, which are some of the main players in the smart city sector globally, they generally treat smart safety as a question of surveillance. And then that becomes um, a surveillance through uh, increasing CCTV cameras, surveillance by increasing police presence, surveillance by increasing kind of reportage from eyewitnesses on the street. So if you see, um, uh, you'll have announcements like report if you see suspicious people or suspicious behavior. So those are the things that, I think the smart city top-down policies are really good at um, and, and really circulate because also, I mean, don't, don't forget, smart city from, from the top is, uh, is a business model. Um, and there, there are several business players here. So if you can turn it into a model in which you can sell something, then it's a successful business model. So the moment it becomes a question of, surveillance, then you can sell CCTV cameras, then you can sell the codes and algorithms for command and control centers from where you can observe the streets and so on. But it doesn't really resolve the issue of patriarchy or misogynist patriarchy. Um, And some of these things I've been writing about before and talking about before where the smart safe city is conceived in policy and, and technology is all about surveillance. But, you know, as we know, the surveillance can actually be highly uh, unequal and highly debilitating for women because they face the first surveillance they face is from their families, from their kinship networks, from their neighborhoods, from their neighbors. And actually, that surveillance can be a very negative kind of surveillance for them because it's loaded with cultural perceptions about women's rightful place and women's rightful bodily attire and behavior and demeanor. And we know what it is all about. Um, so uh, I think that's, you know, that is the key issue. And uh, some of the projects I've been working with both in Delhi, but also we did another project with Safety Pin actually in Kerala, where the city authorities created a safety corridor for women. So that was their initiative for uh, gendering the smart city. And the safety corridor was literally a few miles between two government colleges. Um, and we did the we did kind of a mapping of the city, and we said, well, look, you know, the, there were reports of gender-based violence happening across the city. So the small narrow road between two government colleges is really not going to resolve the safety issue. Um, and so this is the this juncture you see between everyday, actually existing experiences of violence and uh, inequalities and exclusions from public spaces or even within private or neighborhood spaces for women and uh, LGBTQ minority sexuality groups. And the disjuncture with that between kind of the top-down view that, you know, if you surveil, the more you surveil, the safer it is. And actually we know, you know, most feminists would argue that it's not. 
Um, and uh, I mean, the, I think the only way to resolve that would be to make people more aware, to make policymakers more aware that surveillance is a, is a very kind of masculinist, patriarchal approach. Uh, and it shouldn't be about surveillance. It's more about really changing ways that we view women or you know, alternative sexualities in our society. And unless that's changed, really, technology can't do much. It can do some but it can really never resolve the problem. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, um, when we are talking about surveillance, that actually fits into the way our country works, right? Because uh, we are very big on protecting women. You know, we are always, um, in terms of government initiatives, there are a lot of initiatives which ask the men to so, sort of, you know, like uh, placing women, as you said, you know, in their rightful, rightful place, mm. uh, putting them in, in context of uh, their relation, relationship to a, uh, to, to a man, uh, mm. sister, um, sister-in-law, you know, uh, mother. Yeah. Uh, look, look, look at women, you know, not as a human being, but, you know, look at her as your mother or your sister yeah. and and respect her. So this this concept of protecting a woman mm. actually sits very tight with this concept of surveillance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's exactly what um, I was referring to. And, and it it works very well, because uh, when when you frame it that way, it can also be technocratized. It can turn into a technology uh, tool, uh, whereas if you say changing hearts and minds, if you say education, if you say critical consciousness um, and knowledge about gender-based uh, violence, that requires far more in-depth work. That requires far more sensitive policy making, far more consultations with feminist activists and uh, groups that cater to um, these sorts of issues. Um, and that's a, a much more long-term, uh, time-intensive problem that cannot be just subcontracted out to Pricewaterhouse or Cisco, for example. So this is, this is I think, one of the key issues. It's, it's about also uh, political commitment to issues that, are, uh, that need careful attention, that need a lot of time, that need a lot of thinking and consultation vis-a-vis -vis doing things in a quick-fix way. Um, and, and commissioning it out to, uh, to technologies to resolve the problems. And then saying, well, we need to have smart people because we created all these safety apps, but look, women are not using them, so they don't really want to be safe. Um, and to, to blame women as well for not using technology then is, I think, also becomes part of the problem. Uh, we talked a lot about technology, uh, how it's used in a in a smart city, and how that can be uh, that can prove to be a disadvantage for for certain genders or you know um, women. Mm -hmm. So how can we turn this this use of technology to actually make smart cities or mm -hmm. our cities? Um, caring place for women, a, a, a city, you know, where uh, a, an equal space, you know, how can we mm. create an equal space for women using the same technology? Right, that's, that's a, actually a really important question now in the context of COVID. Um, and I think there are so many examples around us to show how that's being done, where uh, you know, volunteers, community support organizations, NGOs have all come together to help people who are stuck, locked out, locked in. I mean, we saw the migrant crisis. 
um, you know, in which people were just left overnight, not knowing what to do, how to get home. Um, and I think this, this is the, the key issue is that smart cities before they came in 2014, 2015, uh, the digital revolution has come to India a long, long time before that. So if we can somehow separate or not conflate the digital with the smart, then I think there are many ways to look at the ways that technology actually can provide and has always been providing support to women and LGBTQI communities um, and other kind of people in low-income communities in, in many, many different ways. And there's just so many examples in India um, now, and they've come forward even more so now with the, with the COVID case where people are making WhatsApp groups, providing support. There are kind of ways uh, that people are making open source uh, applications on GitHub, for example, and you know, provide, uh, tracking numbers, tracking contacts, and it's not necessarily always done by the state, whether it's a local or federal or regional states. It's also done by organizations, by groups of uh, tech, you know, IIT uh, engineers. Um, there's also things like telegram messages people are sending each other. So I think we need to look at kind of the subaltern uses of technology, the low, uh, the low cost, low impact sort of, well, low cost, high impact kinds of technology which is not necessarily centralized integrated they're more fragmented but they they're also more frugal if you want to use that word um, and and they they are more dispersed uh, and yet at the same time they have been far more effective than the big centralized integrated ways of surveillance and contact tracing that we've seen in covid this the digital revolution has done a lot in terms of making people being able to use technology in very creative and very uh, open-ended ways that actually have been providing support for a very long time, is still doing it, will continue doing, and we just need to be aware that that's not necessarily the same as a smart city from the top down. <clears throat> and I think, you know, if we kind of recognize that, if we include the different ways that people use technology, I mean, is it, is it, uh, uh, is it a smart city when we keep a, a contact list in our mobile phone and we press it when we are in trouble. You know, if you think about that as a form of frugal technology of a smart city, then we might be able to become more inclusive of the different kinds of ways of technology use, whether centralized or decentralized, disaggregated and fragmented and frugal. Uh, and think about a smart city that is created from below rather than a smart city that is centralized from above so that the state can see everything and surveil everything. Um, and that's, that's the way I think the, the, we, we can imagine a new kind of future uh, where people from these low-income settlements or in slums can be included. There are also other ways in which to include people who might, might not even be in cities, like in rural areas where they can't read the English interfaces of mobile phones. And there's, there's been a lot of work done on voice recognition, uh, where voice-based interactions are uh, becoming much more uh, prevalent rather than using the software touch-based touch um, interfaces. So, I mean, the, the, I think that the strengths in the Indian kind of digital revolution is that there are so many creative people out there doing just that. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's what should be supported. And that's what to me is a smart city.
If you want to watch the Khadar Ki Ladkiya music video, and you definitely should, head over to YouTube and type in Khadar Ki Ladkiya and be inspired by these young women speaking back to a city that doesn't care. More power to you, sisters. You are listening to the Women Interrupted podcast where every week we deconstruct the many different ways in which women's lives are interrupted in India and across the world. Find and subscribe to the Women Interrupted podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast or on anchor.fm where you can leave me a voice message with your comments and suggestions. Do tune in next week till then goodbye. price you have to pay when you are born and raised in a country which has been adjudged to be the most dangerous country for women in the world over and over again from raging gender inequalities to non-access to education and economic opportunities from femicide feticide domestic violence feeling unwanted being killed in the womb there are a thousand ways in which women are silenced in india Join me every week on Fridays to deconstruct the very many ways in which women are interrupted and paused in India.